encountering the texture of the text of God's Word, text and context. Guide unto my path. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, let me tell you what I noticed this morning. I noticed laughter that we share together as Micah, who wasn't planned to read, hops up to read, and of all the scriptures for him to read, is given a very plain, normal, typical verse from the scripture. I heard 20 sermons on that Yeah, uh, I heard 20 sermons on that passage already. Yeah, absolutely. I hear, I'll fly away, or I did, on the other side of the wall. Uh, anybody else just love that song to death? Um, sometimes, because of the arrangement at the gathering, I find myself singing this song but tapping my foot to their song. Anybody else? Anybody else do it? And it's weird. It's like a double worship. You know, it's like subliminal and uh, it's, it's like explicit and implicit worship, subconscious and conscious worship. It's a little, a little bit of both. I also uh, just feel love this morning uh, to be surrounded by a close and intimate church family. Just wanted you to know those are some things that I've noticed this morning. Uh, so, um, the Bible, this book of God's Word. Have you read this thing? Like, have you actually read this thing? Because it's, it's an interesting book. <laughs> an interesting book, to say the least. So, uh, you know by now that I'm a big fan of the Bible Project, right? Have you heard of the Bible Project? I've, I've talked about them multiple times. I've shown their videos in church and in Bible class. If you are not aware of the Bible Project, Google it. They're excellent. Uh, and just so you know, just so you know that I'm cool. Uh, I was a fan of the Bible Project before it was cool to be a fan of the Bible Project. Uh, I, I stumbled across them in high school. And uh, they, it was before they had finished. You know how they have those videos where they, they overview each book of the Bible and give you a feel for the layout of the... I, I became a fan of them before they finished those. So just saying. I've been, I've been on the ground floor of the Bible Project. I, I've been a fan from the beginning. But uh, I love all that they do. Uh, just so many excellent resources to help you explore God's word. And what I love about them is they, they have such a, a intelligent reading of the word, but it's still so faithful. They, 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 this is God's word to them, right? They're not just studying it from an objective standpoint outside of it as if they don't care about it. They care about it. And they want people to actually dig in and read it, especially the strange parts. And um, they have a podcast as well called the Bible Project Podcast. If you're into podcasts, I'd recommend listening to that if you have a long drive or something. I don't know. But they had one a few years back now, and they've stopped producing it, but they had a different one a few years back called Exploring My Strange Bible. <laughs> now, if you know me, you know just the title alone. I was, I was hooked. I was in. But I really liked that series. It was my favorite one, actually. And it's just a collection of sermons and lectures by one of the main creators of the Bible Project, Tim Mackey. That's all that is. Uh, and they've stopped producing it now, I guess, because they just ran out of material that he had previously produced. And now they're just caught up to material he's currently producing. But it's good stuff. I, I liked it in general, but I think I like more than anything else just the concept of acknowledging that we have a strange Bible. Because we do. Have you read this thing? Like, I actually read this thing because it's, it's interesting. And we'll talk about that some. You know, there are some who either ignore or downplay how strange Scripture is. And I know that they mean well. And, and I, I agree with them to some extent. 
But they downplay how strange our scriptures really can be. And they'll say something like, well, the Bible is always clear and simple. And every time I hear that, I'm like, yeah, have you read it? And usually they're like, well, of course I've read it. And I'm like, no, I don't think you have. Because <laughs> there is some strange stuff in our Bibles. And it's not always so plain and simple and clear. Because, in fact, we've been debating a lot of this stuff for 2,000 years. Basically, since it was canonized, we've been debating it since the beginning. And if it's so clear and simple, why do we have so many different denominations and traditions? Oh, it's so clear and simple. And it's not even as simple as saying, well, what's the Baptist stance on that issue? You know why, right? There's like a billion different kinds of Baptist. Which kind of Baptist stance? Missionary, independent, general, fundamentalist, primitive, American? Which brand? And even then, you know this, even within each given church, everybody agrees on every issue perfectly. <laughs> yeah, right! There's interpretation, no differences inside each group. And we know this, right? It's not even as simple as saying, what's the Church of Christ stance? Right? Because you have... Uh, Are you a progressive Church of Christ or a mainline Church of Christ? Or an anti-institutional Church of Christ? Still debating things like kitchens, you know. Um, Are you you affiliated with the Boston movement? You remember that? Or I just learned of this other fun cult that arose from the Churches of Christ, the uh, Stanton-affiliated churches. It's a whole other group that I discovered. It's, It's a thing. There's all these different groups out there. And even within those groups... They always agree on all the same things in each of the churches, don't they? No. What would be the fun of having a Bible class if they all agreed perfectly on everything? So yeah, Scripture is so clear and simple always. I don't know if you can tell, but I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. Okay, look, just to be perfectly clear, I love the Word of God. I know you do too. You're agreeing with me that it's not always clear and simple, and yet, and yet we also kind of think it is too. Isn't that weird? That's part of what makes it weirder. Like, the book's kind of strange on its own. If you had no interest in the Bible, and if you were just coming at it from a purely just like, well, I'm bored, I'm going to read this thing, kind of standpoint, and you read it, you'd think it's strange. But the fact that we see how strange it is, and yet we call it sacred, holy, and the very word of God to us today, that's even weirder. Isn't it? The fact that we're, we, we have this like strong conviction about the Bible being something. It's just like, it is. It's, It says something authoritatively. And we're like, yeah. But then we can't agree on what it says on some of the details. But we agree that it's, it's, the one thing we do agree on is the thing itself. We don't always agree on what to do with it. And it's interesting. Again, this diverse library of ancient documents written in three ancient languages that we do not speak or write in is the very word of God to us today. And I do think that. But you got to admit, it's kind of strange. It's kind of strange. Uh, I've mentioned before some of the strange things in Scripture because you know that I have a penchant for the strange things in Scripture. I preached a sermon series on Leviticus. Uh, preached a sermon on do not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. By the grace of God, nobody in my church is going to be boiling a baby goat in its mother's milk. Uh, I love the strange parts of Scripture. I love the strange parts of Scripture because I love Scripture. Because I love the Word of God, and I love the Word of God because I love God. It's just kind of an interesting arrangement for me. So I had two fun scriptures read for us this morning. What'd you think of the first one? I've never heard it. You've never? Okay, so has anybody heard of that story before in scripture? Was anybody aware? So a few. And some, was anybody just like, I've never heard of that? What'd you say? I thought you got a real appropriate reader. Oh, I did too. Oh, I worked oh, out. Some people are like, I didn't even know that was there. 
Yeah. Oh, you just wait. There's more coming. But um, get this story. Uh, Elisha, Elijah's successor, the prophet, is um, he's going to Bethel. And all the way, this like mob of middle schoolers just, I don't know, just comes out of the market square and starts antagonizing him, calling him baldy, bald head, bald, bald, they're teasing him for being bald. Okay. And his response is, the Lord bless you. His response is to call a curse down in the name of Yahweh. And then a two sheep, two, two she bears come out of the woods and maul 42 children to death. Okay, look, I got a lot of questions. The first one of them is just simply, 42? 42? How many kids are out there? This really is like a mob of middle schoolers in a cafeteria just like ganging up on him. And then what disturbs me the most of this story is not the sheer fact that the she-bears come out and maul 42 children to death. Somehow I've come to grips with that, I guess. What terrifies me the most is, from there he went on to Mount Carmel and then returned to Samaria. The text, the text just moves forward like another day in the life of Elisha. I'm just going to stop off at the uh, QT, top off my camel with gas, grab a few snacks at a gas station, call down a curse and have a she-bear maul 42 children to death and continue on my merry way. Just another day in the life, people. This is in our Bible. Or that other verse that I had read from Galatians. Anybody ever heard that one before? Anybody knew that was there? Some of you say no. Okay, let's set the context for Galatians, shall we? It's a pretty explicit, pretty graphic little verse, but let's set the context. Because that helps, and it makes it even more graphic, explicit, and fun. Galatians is Paul's angriest letter, if you couldn't tell. It's his angriest letter, because he planted this church in Galatia, and some people are causing trouble and, and upending their faith. And the main thing it seems that they're doing is they're insisting on circumcision. They're saying, Circum you have to be circumcised. If you're a Gentile and you came to faith, you better get circumcised. And Paul's like, no, did you miss anything that I said when I was with you? If you were uncircumcised when you came to faith, stay that way. If you were circumcised when you came to faith, stay that way. Otherwise, just quit worrying about it. Circumcise your hearts, right? And so he's furious. And he's so furious, he says, well, you know what? If you're so obsessed with circumcision, just chop the whole thing off. That's in our Bible. I love that. That's hilarious. Paul has a great sense of it. I'll tell you what. People who are Christians and think you have to always be ultra serious, they've clearly not read the Bible. And they clearly haven't met our God because our God is a God of humor, a God who makes flamingos and platypi and humans. There are different kinds of odd texts. Let's look at some more, shall we? Just to make sure that we're all on the same page on the nature of these scriptures of ours. There are different kinds of odd. For example, have you ever read the Psalms that call down curses on their enemies? Did you know those are in there? There are Psalms in our Bible that call down curses on their enemies. It's called imprecatory psalms, imprecation, a curse. They're calling for an imprecation upon their enemies. Now, some of them are so mild that you've probably read over them and not really realized that they're technically curses. So take, for example, Psalm 5. At the end of Psalm 5, it just says this. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of their many transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Right? Pretty mild. 
In fact, you've got to lean in to pay attention to the fact that that's a curse. But it is. Uh, make them bear their guilt, O God. You're calling down a negative thing upon the other. Uh, let them fall by their own counsels. Because of their many transgressions, cast them out. That's probably the most violent word in that whole thing. Cast them out. But we tend to just like spiritualize that and be like, well, you know, make them stop being mean to me. Because we're a privileged people whose problems are really not that terrible most of the time. Right? But for Israel, who's dealing with some actual violent neighbors, cast them out. That's pretty, that's a pretty direct quote. And by the way, just because I have small problems doesn't mean they're not problems. I spiritualize that line, personally, when I pray. But then there's other verses that are really quite a bit more extreme. And really, like, the notorious worst example of this in the Psalms is Psalm 137. And if you read the last two verses of Psalm 137, I'm going to read it. And by the way, this is just really graphic, so I'll just give you a warning. Okay, it's, it's, it's pretty rough. Here's what it says. O daughter Babylon, you devastator. Happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Is anybody aware that that was in the Bible? Some of you. Some, some of you never even heard that before ever. Yeah. Um, you know, interesting, there's a, there's a, I found this the other day, David, when I was looking for songs that have to do with the word of God. There is a psalm in our songbook. It is Psalm 444. Based on Psalm 137. But uh, they left that part out. Yeah. Uh, It's pretty rough. So so really, did you catch what's going on there? Pay them back what they've done to us. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So that means that Israel's enemies, specifically Edom is one of them here, and Babylon, whenever they came and exiled Israel, they sieged to the city and took them into exile, this is one of the things that they did to Israel because it's hard to take a child into exile. They won't make the long journey, so they kill them. Infanticide. So the curse is, well, let that be done back to them since they did that to us. Because this is a gross injustice. It's, it's hard. And then there are other kinds of oddities in our scriptures. For example, the Song of Solomon. Just the mere existence of Song of Solomon in our canon. I'm not going to dig into any particular text this morning because it's Sunday morning and it just feels inappropriate. But Song of Solomon is in our Bible. How many of you have heard many sermons on the Song of Solomon? I haven't heard many. Right? You've heard several. Okay, great. Great. I have preached a sermon from Song of Solomon on a Wednesday night. I have. It's a great book of the Bible. But um, I'll just tell you, Song of Solomon is an erotic, ancient love poem. Inspired, given to us by God, but that's what it is. I mean... Uh, it's, it's between uh, Ecclesiastes and Isaiah tucked away in there. And now if this was a youth rally, this is the part where you'd hear pages frantically turning. You'd hear them pulling out their phones and, and stabbing as hard as they can at their lightsaber of truth, trying to find where this is in the scripture. Because I doubt that they've heard many sermons from it or heard much teaching from it or even maybe even read it or known it was there. But it's there. Isn't that interesting how you can have a part of your Bible that's been there the whole time in every single one of the Bibles you've ever owned but that you haven't read yet? Isn't that weird? Or that you don't know what to do with it. What do we do with that? Right? Because some people are like, well, it's just about love between husband and wife. And, and I'm, I'm kind of more on that line. And then there are others who are like, no, it's a metaphor about love between Christ and his church, God and us. And I'm like, I believe God loves us, but I don't think he did that to me. Uh, I, I just don't know what to do with, with, with that. What do you do with that? It's in our Bibles. Or the prophets. You know I love the prophets. 
Those prophets are interesting people. Some of them, uh, so Ezekiel. Ezekiel cooks with human poop. Yes. Actually, God says cook with, I think it's camel, some sort of animal, camel dung. And then Ezekiel says, well, that's a little gross. Can I use human dung? And God says, sure. We serve a gracious and compassionate God. And so uh, he uses this as fuel for the fire to cook. I don't remember exactly what he cooks, maybe bread or something. But he cooks something, and then he eats it. The thing he cooked, not the, you know, uh, Hosea is told by God, go marry a prostitute. Because she's going to cheat on you. And that's what it's like having Israel as your people. They cheat on me with other deities all the time. And he does it. And then he says, name your children not loved and not my people. Can you imagine? Not loved, time for dinner. Not my people, come in. Can you imagine? Eventually they get their names changed. Praise God. But at least for a bit. Jonah got swallowed by a whale because he tried to run away after being told to go to Nineveh. And then gets puked up on a dry ground and goes anyway. Does a terrible job of it and then sits outside the city and pouts because he's mad at God. And God doesn't strike him dead. That's, I, I'm not telling God how to be God, but that would be my first impression with Jonah. Daniel. Prophet Daniel, there are a lot of weird things in Daniel, but Daniel foretells to the king of Persia, Nebuchadnezzar, that he, because he's refusing to acknowledge Yahweh as God, is going to go crazy, he's going to start eating grass like an ox, and he's going to grow long fingernails like talons, and he's going to grow out long hair, and he's going to function like an ox until he learns that Yahweh alone is God. And he does. And then eventually he comes back from that because he acknowledges Yahweh as God. But it happens. Isaiah Beautiful Isaiah. We read from Isaiah this morning in Bible class. The new heavens and the new earth. He's the one that tells us about the virgin birth. He's the one that you know, has the servant songs. He also was told by God to walk around naked for three years. To prove a point. The point was, you're about to be drug off into exile. And you're going to, uh, exile is humiliating. You will have to march all the way to Babylon stark naked. And the people were like, ah, we're not going to get exiled. God's on our side. And Isaiah says, No. Can you imagine coming into church this morning? Look, Brother Isaiah, uh, I, I know you say God told you, but the rest of us just aren't so certain. Um, could you ask him again? Just to be sure. Could, maybe at least like a little loincloth or a speedo or something is permitted. I, just let's ask him again just to be sure. Okay. Three years. Three years. Why aren't they kicking him out of the temple before that? Yeah. Three, and it's very specific. He didn't even wear shoes. Not even shoes. And then there are yet other oddities to these scriptures of ours. For example, First and Second Corinthians are probably not First and Second. Did you know this? Probably First and Second Corinthians are not First and Second. It seems like Paul wrote a letter before First Corinthians, and we don't have it. Which means First Corinthians is probably actually Second Corinthians. And then it seems like he wrote another one and maybe even another another one between the first, what we call 1 Corinthians and what we call 2 Corinthians, which means 2 Corinthians might actually be either 3rd or 4th Corinthians, depending on how you parse it all out. Go back and read 1 and 2 Corinthians. It's weird. There's all these letters being exchanged, and it, certainly we don't have all of them. It just seems that way. Early church fathers verify that for us. They're like, yeah, there were some extra letters, and we don't know what happened. But the point is, 1 and 2 Corinthians, technically, 2nd and maybe 3rd or 4th depending on how you discern it. It's weird. And then um, Paul says this wonderful thing at the end of Colossians. 
Uh, don't worry, it's not like the Galatians one. Paul says this at the end of Colossians, Colossians 4.16. And once this letter, Colossians, has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you read also the letter from Laodicea. Switch letters. Now this is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, we don't have the letter to the Laodiceans. Not a copy, not a hint of a, well, not a copy. We don't have the letter to the Laodiceans. Okay? Don't have it. I wish we did. But this is interesting to me because I was raised on the Church of Christ hermeneutic of command, example, and necessary inference in that order. Command comes first. And if he commands it, you do it. If he says do it, do it. If he says don't do it, don't do it. Well, here's the problem. Here's a command in Scripture that I am 100% incapable of obeying. I cannot read the letter to the Laodiceans even if I wanted to. We do not have it. Can't read it. And, and here's a question. Let's say we found it tomorrow. Biblical archaeology is always advancing. That's a fun thing to talk about. Let's say we found it tomorrow. What are we going to do with it? Right? I mean, we're going to read it, clearly. Out of pure fascination alone, we're going to read it. But you know there's going to be somebody who says, well, does this belong in Scripture? And some of you are going to say, maybe. Some of you are going to say, heck no. Some of you are going to say, oh, yes. I would eat. Paul referred to it as if it's like the other letters. Like, what do you do with that? I don't know. I mean, thankfully, we're not at that point. So we'll just, you know, wait till we get there. Wait till we get the letter. Hopefully. It would be great if we found it. But then what in the world do you do with it at that point? I, I don't know. I'm not saying I have any answers. I'm just trying to disturb you. And here's your question. Um, we believe the scripture's from God, right? It's God. Paul is the author, but God is the author, but Paul is the author, but God is the author. It's God's words in human words. <coughs> Well, okay, great. What do you do with 1 Corinthians 7, 12, where Paul explicitly says, well, this is my thoughts, not God's. Do you remember this passage? And, and to make it even more fun, he's talking about marriage and divorce, an issue that is always so terribly clear and simple, isn't it? As we found out from church practice. Always that issue is black and white, plain, clear, and simple. Except it's not. And then Paul, just to make matters worse, says, well, this is my thoughts, not God's. Okay, what do you do with that? Is he inspired to give his opinion, so therefore you follow it? Or is he inspired, he steps back for a sec, says, well, here's my thought on the matter. Anyway, back to our regularly scheduled program, and then continue. Like, what do you do with that? It's a weird phenomenon, at the least, you got to admit, right? That's strange. And there's another place where he says, well, this is God, not me. Just a few verses before that, which is like, well, this is God's thoughts, not necessarily mine. Then he says, well, this is my thoughts, not necessarily God's. Well, if the whole thing is inspired, then what do you do with it? Huh? It's always plain and clear and simple, isn't it? And one last example, just to make sure you can't sleep tonight. Jude 14. Anybody read the book of Jude lately? Oh, some people have read the book of Jude. Fantastic. I say that jokingly, it's this real tiny letter tucked after 3 John and before the book of Revelation. Wonderful, encouraging little letter. Jude, the brother of our Lord, uh, right alongside James. Jude 14. It was also about these that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied saying. Now, I'm not going to tell you what it actually quotes there because that's not the point I'm trying to make here. What I'm trying to make is that he quotes this source at all. Okay, so this is weird. Because we do not have the letter to the Laodiceans, but we have the book of Enoch that he's quoting from. We have it. You can read it in an English translation. Find it on Amazon. You can find it. It's out there. And it's 
weird. If you think our Bible's weird, this thing is weird. Okay? And it's not just that he quotes from it, because that alone doesn't necessarily mean anything alarming. Paul quotes from pagan uh, poets in Acts 17 when he's on the Mount of, uh, uh, well, Mars Hill. When he's on the Acropolis, he he is uh, quoting pagan poets there. But he doesn't quote those pagan poets as if they're scripture. But some have said that the way Jude uses scripture looks really similar to the way he's using Enoch here. Which raises a really odd question. What if Jude considered it to be scripture? Some have said that he did. And then said, well, he considered that, but, but we don't. Some have said, well, he considered it that, and so do we. They're, they're Christian. It's a minority view. A minority view, for sure. But our friends in the, uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo churches have Enoch in their canon. They have another canon. Now, their Bible is giant. You think our Bible's big. Their Bibles, their regular Bible without study notes makes our Bibles with study notes look small. They're huge. And this brings up the issue of canon in general. The Bible is so clear and simple. Great. Which translation? <laughs> the NIV? Yes. Great. Okay, 2011 or 1984 version? 84. <laughs> okay, wow. You have answers. I like that. <laughs> or the NLT? New Living? Or the Message? Or the New American Standard Bible? Or the Legacy Standard Bible? Or the Christian Standard Bible? Or the New American Bible Revised Edition? Or the New Revised Standard Version? Or the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition? Or the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition Catholic Edition? Or the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition Anglican Edition? Which one? It's all clear and simple. It's all clear and simple. And which Bible? Because if you're debating with some other Christians, even some Protestant Christians, uh, our Protestant Bibles typically have 66 books. Right? That's what my Bible has. It's your Bible. Our Catholic friends have 73 books in their Bible because they include the Apocrypha. Although they don't call it the Apocrypha, they call it the Deuterocanonical books because they are not a separate collection for them. They are included right alongside the others. So they have 73. Uh, our Greek and Russian Orthodox friends have 79 books in their Bible. Apocrypha plus some. And then, of course, the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo churches have 81 books in their Bible. Huge canon. Right? Anybody ever see that campaign at one point? It was a big Christian movement that said, I am 67. There's 66 books in the Bible, so you might be the only Bible book that someone ever reads. So your book 67. You ever heard this before? I always thought that was fun, but then I was like, well, I guess my Catholic friends have to have I am 74. <laughs> my Greek and Russian Orthodox have to have I am 80. And then my Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church friends have to have I am 82. So cause they're the only Bible that people might ever read. Okay, so the canon debate is a fun one, and I would love to go into the depths of the mire with you on that one, but not right now because it would take us too offshore. I just want to unease you a tad just so that I can then calm your unease. Okay, so what? So what? Anybody else learn something this morning and go, whoa, that's in the Bible? Anybody? Yeah, just a few. Yeah. Okay, great, so what? Am I just doing this because I'm just in a mood to disturb you? Am I doing this because, God forbid, I want to upend your faith? No, of course not. But I hope we can agree, Scripture is not always so terribly clear and simple. To clarify, Scripture is not always so terribly clear and simple about every issue. To say that it is about some things is not to say that it is about everything. Uh, There's an old saying, uh, I believe it's in a creedal statement, that says the Bible gives us everything we need to know pertaining to life and God. 
So that doesn't necessarily mean it tells us everything about everything about everything. It tells us everything we need to know for this basic life of faith of ours. But it doesn't necessarily tell us what do we do with artificial intelligence. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily tell us about every single... It certainly relates to it. I'm not saying that. But it doesn't directly address those because it was written in a different world and a different culture. It certainly relates to it. And so we make that analogy, but then here comes the debate, right? And I've come to grow, um, I used to think that like debating amongst ourselves was a bad thing. We all have to be of the same mind. But it's funny, even in churches where they emphasize we're all of the same mind. No, they're not. No, they're not. They just scare people into not sharing what they actually think, which is worse. Because if we actually all say what we actually think and then just debate and say, you're crazy. Let's go have lunch on Friday. And it, the, the, the difference of understanding on some of these peripheral issues doesn't divide us. Then that just makes Bible class a really good time. And I am all for it. In fact, I love whenever I'm saying something and I'm like staunchly of this opinion and somebody says, well, I don't think that. And I'm like, great. What do you think? That's Micah. That's Micah. Micah loves to push my buttons. I love it. He loves to come I'm up and holding back so much. I know you are. I know you are. He's holding back. Well, don't. No, I'm just kidding. We don't want to, you know, no, we stuck on one page. We do need to get through Yeah. Like, well, we will, Lord willing, finish the Gospel of Mark by the year 2026. I, I, I'm praying. Lord willing. Lord willing. And then we'll have to start over again. And then we'll have to. <laughs> yes. That's the problem with big studies like that. You forget kind of where you started. God is an author, isn't he? We believe scriptures from God, so God's an author. Paul's an author, David's an author, Moses is an author, sure, but, but God's an author. Why do we box God in as if he's a really terrible author who can only write in one way and flat across the line? We, we tend to flatten scripture. But let me tell you, there is texture to this text. There, there, man, there is some fun stuff in scripture that we can, we can talk about. Some crazy stuff. And it's not all flat the same. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, you don't read Psalms the same way you read the book of Revelation. At least I hope not. Right? You do not read Second Chronicles the same way you read Paul. The same way you read Acts. Because they're different. They're different genres. Does that word mean anything to you? Okay. I've talked about this in church before and said genre and people look at me like I'm nuts. And so then I've, I've gone to other churches where I go into this in-depth explanation of genre and they act like I'm treating them like they're stupid because they already know what that means. So just in case you're someone who does not know what that means and are afraid to speak out, genre is different kinds or types of literature. Okay. So in the modern world, um, novel is a different genre from the newspaper, which is a different genre from a pamphlet, which is a different genre from a short story, which is a different genre from a blog. You with me? So if you try to read a blog the way you read a novel, you're going to run into problems. If you try to read a pamphlet the way you read a newspaper, you're going to have problems. You see, the, there's an agreed-upon assumption that when you're reading a newspaper, you kind of generally know what to expect. There's an agreed-upon convention that whenever you're reading a novel, you kinda, you're, you're not going to get into the middle of the novel and all of a sudden see classifieds. That would be weird. And it would be quickly outdated. So you wouldn't want to preserve that in a book, really you were just doing some obscure history project. See what I'm saying? And those are all different from a history textbook. I sure hope you don't read a history textbook the way you read a novel. We need to remember the stories of the past, as they often say. I thought it was more like, you know, 
Mystery is a genre. Comedy yeah. is a genre. I would say those are subgenres. That's how I would think of it. So then, yeah, so great point. So you have the common use. Yeah, that is the common use. But it also applies to the broad. It's true. It's true. So, yeah. So, for example, I think of uh, movies, which you have different subgenres of movies. You have rom com, romantic comedy. You have dramedy, drama comedy. You have comedy. You have horror, and then you can go subcategories of horror. You know, slasher flick, uh, I don't know. Thriller. Thriller, psychological, psychological stereotypical camp scene, uh, all of it, right? And there's different subgenres, and you kind of know what to expect whenever you watch it. It's like, this is what I'm agreed upon. Psalms are poetry, right? Which means they have certain conventions about how they talk and convey. Our God, if he's an author, he's the best author there ever was capable of writing in breadth and depth and all sorts of different styles, and it's still being true. But just because it's from the same author doesn't mean that it's all equally like, written the same way. It's all written kind of different. You have letters, you have poetry, you have history, and all sorts of stuff in our Bibles. Um, I, re I read or heard somewhere that the ancient rabbis used to say, about scripture. Turn it, turn it, because everything is in it. And of course, what what the analogy there is that scripture is a gemstone, a precious, like a diamond. And you hold it up to the light, and you, I mean, man, you hold it up to the light, and you turn it, and you turn it, and you keep on turning it because everything's in it. You look at the way the light reflects this way and this way and this way and this way and, and you reflect it every single direction you possibly can. I like that. I think that's true of our scripture. Can we find something true and good and beautiful in a story about Elisha calling down a curse to maul 42 children to death and <laughs> she bears? Yes, I think we can. Somehow. I'm also reminded of this thing that this one pastor wrote to a younger pastor that he was mentoring. He was one of those pastor of pastors, a, a real mentor, a real bishop type. And he was writing to a young pastor that he was, he was mentoring, a, a beloved sunlight figure to him. And he was encouraging him in his pastoral ministry because it's really easy to get discouraged in the pastoral ministry. And to encourage him, he wrote a letter, and he, here's one of the things he said in that letter. He said, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful. It's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, preach the word. Be persistent. Whether the time is favorable or unfavorable, convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience and teaching, because, because the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. As for you, always be sober, 
Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Carry out your ministry fully. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.